Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By now, you realize that this is not going to be a normal Sunday. Uh, due to a, an exposure to COVID in my own personal home, uh, we are going to do this a little different this morning, so I am speaking this message in advance uh, so that I can protect the safety of all those uh, that are part of this service. And uh, I'm sorry I can't be there directly with you, uh, but I am at home praying as this is being heard by each of you. We would continue now into the series, Bonafide, Confronting Superficial Faith. It's coming out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount begins with what is called the Beatitudes, the attitudes that God embraces. We understand the context of this best when we go into Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, when Jesus was saying that if you think that your righteousness is good enough because it rises to the level of the Pharisees, you're going to fall short. In fact, Jesus says clearly, unless your standard of righteousness goes beyond that of the Pharisees, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Which again was an alarming statement for those who were in the audience because they saw the Pharisees as being some of the most righteous, if not the righteous standard of their time. And Jesus is saying, it's not enough. Now that's helpful to hear that and then appreciate the Beatitudes and all that will fall after that statement in the rest of Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, basically what you have is God saying through several statements of blessed or blessed are you. It's an affirmation. It's a saying that you're approved. You are blessed. You are affirmed. And as some texts would say, happy are you if you follow what comes next. And so in the text... We've already received from the Beatitudes that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or affirmed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed, affirmed, approved are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed, affirmed, approved are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Over the last few weeks, we've unpacked the, those particular Beatitudes. And again, as we've taught at the beginning of these Beatitudes, you need to receive them progressively. They build on top of each other. And so Jesus is building a profile of a person who is seen as righteous in the eyes of God, the one who is affirmed and approved and who will experience the kingdom of heaven. It begins with the understanding of what we are and who we are as sinners. When he says, approved, blessed, affirmed is the one who is poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, approved, affirmed, is the one who understands that they are a sinner. And that in that sin, there is no way they could please God to the fullest end. They will fall short. And as a result of being poor in spirit and understanding their state before God, they begin to grieve because they acknowledge this grieves God. And they're grieving over their own sin that they fall short and that there's nothing you or I can do. And so we, we mourn over it. And then as a result of acknowledging our state of being a sinner, depraved and falling short of God and grieving over it, it humbles us, that meekness, realizing that my state is what it is and that I no longer go before God and say, hey, look at me, approve of me. But rather we go to God and before others as a humble person, acknowledging that we are in need of help just like anyone else. And then hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know, when you're poor in spirit and you realize you're bankrupt spiritually and, and you grieve over that and then you become humbled by that and you have a humble approach to God and you have a humble approach before mankind, you begin to hunger for that which you are not. Hungering for righteousness. Asking to be filled. And God promises, I will fill you. We looked last week at what that righteousness means. It's, it's a right relatedness between us and God and, and between us and others and before all that God has created. And so to hunger for that right relatedness with God will also cause us like out of humility to say, but I want right relatedness between me and my brothers and sisters, those I interact with, even my enemies. So all of these things progress, as you can see. Uh, a broken heart, acknowledging <laughs> I fall short again, and I grieve over it, and then I become humble by it. But then I hunger for what I am not. I'm not righteous, so, but I hunger for it. So we need to look at, then there are promises that God says in response to each one of them. To the poor in spirit, he says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. To the one who mourns over their sins, he says, I'm going to embrace you. I'm going to comfort you. To the one who is humble and meek before God and before mankind, he actually says, you're the type of person that's going to inherit the earth. And then for the one who desires that which they do not have in righteousness and, and right relatedness with God, God promises them they will be filled. As you can see, as we progress through this, it's gone from a deep internal part of our being, and it's beginning to become more evidential. As we see 
it rise to the top. And so as the person who is hungering and thirsting for right relatedness between them and God and between them and other people, the next beatitude speaks to that when it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I grew up in a household where when something that was shared that might be kind of unexpected or blows your mind or disappoints, you might hear the phrase, mercy, mercy. Mercy, mercy. I can still hear my grandfather saying it. And then my, my father, over time, whenever something would be so significant, he would go, mercy, Boku. And I realized I have no idea what that means. And so I looked it up. I said, hey, Siri, what does mercy, Boku mean? And I find out it's a slang term for something big. And so growing up, that term mercy had a lot of usage in the household I was around, but didn't necessarily capture the fullness of the meaning mercy. In the original languages of the Greek, the term here is to talk about that which is, shows or operates in compassion or to pardon and forgive. So there's two sides to mercy. It's to be compassionate, but it's also to forgive or to pardon. And so mercy then embraces both. It embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. This came out of a commentary during my studies, and I just really felt that was an important statement, that mercy embraces both the forgiveness of the guilty, for the guilty, and compassion for those who are suffering and are needy. So in the, the light of the whole beatitude progression, being poor in spirit, acknowledging I fall short, I can't please God, and then grieving over that state, which then leads us to being humble in our approach to God and before man because we don't see ourselves too highly. And then hungering for that which we are not, hungering for righteousness, right relatedness between us and God then leads us to being right-related and desiring right relationship between us and mankind. You see, when we're poor in spirit, we begin to realize, I cannot, and we grieve over it. And then we, after grieving over it, we seek to be a humble person, and, and we realize that our hungering and thirsting for that which we cannot only comes from God. And we realize it's an act of mercy on God's part. And when we receive this mercy from God, it should change the lens by how we look upon those around us that are in need of forgiveness or pardon from us or in need of our compassion and pity. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, when it talks about how we've received mercy from God. And where that mercy comes from is Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Let me read, and it will be on the screen. But it says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's that poor in spirit, realizing 
We're dead. But we're made alive in Christ. And it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God, who is rich in mercy, looks at you and I who are dead in our transgressions and then ultimately pays the price through a work a mercy and grace to enable us to come alive. That rich in mercy where he looks upon us, he sees our sin, and instead of condemning us, he seeks to save us. He shows mercy. He pardons us through the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. A complete act of mercy. We were owed the death penalty. We had earned it. And therefore, it should have been our cross. But instead, Jesus took the penalty for us. And therefore, as that act of mercy, that pardon of us, that compassion towards us, led to grace that is now ours. A grace given to us. Something we did not earn. We now have in Jesus Christ. And so it becomes this incomparable riches by which you and I can experience. And when you understand all that God did for you and for me, then it should overflow in the same compassion and the same pardon towards those who are around us. I've often confessed before this church that whenever I take a spiritual gift test, which looks at all the various things that God says he gives to his people so that they, we can serve others with it. That in those spiritual gifts, with their, which the list is many, my bottom two always includes mercy. I'm always embarrassed to admit that. And a lot of people that are close to me, they would say, yeah, I can see maybe it a little bit, but I don't see it absent. And I can honestly tell you that's because God is changing me, transforming me, and making me a different man. And so I've become more merciful as time has gone on, but it's still not my inherent go-to. Internally, I always have to wage, wage the battle within and, and, and be able to say, I'm not going to operate in, in judgment, but rather be merciful. And so acknowledging that this is a journey that many of us can struggle with. It's very easy to say, yes, I've received much mercy from God. But it's more difficult than to live our lives in acknowledgement that we've received much mercy and that we're objects of mercy to then how we operate towards other people. Because keep in mind, what he is saying is that this right relatedness, this righteousness between us and God is going to cause us to want right relationships with each other, which then God affirms, therefore, that those who are merciful will receive mercy. So, Jesus is saying, the one who is truly righteous, the one who is going to inherit the kingdom of God, you will begin to see the evidence of the inner work of God of a sinner 
who is now being transformed, becoming humble, striving for righteousness and right relatedness between them and God and between them and other people. Therefore, mercy is the first evidence. You see, it's easy to love on those who love you back. It's very difficult to show love to those who despise you, hate you, or maybe are simply strangers to you, or have a different part of society from you. Mercy, don't forget, includes two things. It includes the pardon and forgiveness to those who may have sinned against you, but it also includes compassion to those who are needy or have been harmed. So let's look at a text where I believe this connects a lot of the dots that we find in Blessed are the merciful. Approved are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 25. Again, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 25. Let me give a little context. Jesus loves to tell stories about making a point. And so a question is asked of him by Peter. In verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, let me explain. Why would Peter say up to seven times? Well, it was a common Hebrew practice that if there was something to make amends for or to make an impression of, and you want to really prove yourself to do right, do it seven times. After all, that's God's number. So when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? That would be like incredible. To forgive them one time is, okay, most human beings can do that. To do it a second time? Ooh, you're really stepping up. A third time, forget it. Three strikes, you're out, right? Seven times, he says. But Jesus says, no. Not just seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations say seven times seven. The reality is, it's an it's a infinite number. We got to keep doing it, Jesus says. So, to prove his point or to explain his point, he tells a story and goes on to explain it very full. In fact, I, I kind of laugh because I know some people, it's like they can make their point. And Jesus just made his point. Peter, it's not just seven times, which you think is an, an incredible number. It's 77 times, which means you've got to keep doing it over and over to forgive someone who sinned against you. Then he tells the story. This is where, for those of us who work at LEFC in the office, when Pastor Joel Lingenfelt, our executive pastor, goes to tell us a main point, he tells us the point, and then he usually tells us a story. So I would just say this is a point where I would say uh, one of our pastors operates much like Jesus in this matter. Hopefully you can appreciate the tongue-in-cheek. But look at the story of what Jesus shares. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man owed him 10,000 bags of gold. 
And, and that man was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's masters took pity on him. And, and, and canceled, the servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now to understand this even more fully, the servant, that, the first servant that came before the master or the king that owed 10,000 bags of gold or talents was the first character that we need to look at and, and understand more fully. The equivalent of 10,000 bags of gold was 20 years worth of a laborer's wages. So a laborer's wage would have taken 20 years to accumulate 10,000 bags of gold. So this debt was significant. The master had every right, in fact, legally had every right to say, I am now going to take you, your wife, and your children, and sell you into slavery to pay for the debt. It was in the biblical records that this was a case that they could legally do that. And of course, that servant's thinking, if he sells my children, I may never see them again. If he sells my wife, I may never see her again. So what would you do? You'd beg. You'd beg. Please have mercy on me. Be patient with me. I'll pay it back. Now, the likelihood of him paying back 20 years worth of his wage was pretty little. But based on the response and the begging and the pleading, the master, the king, showed pity, showed mercy, showed compassion, and he pardoned. He forgave the entire debt, and it was significant. It was, it was unpayable. And he said, it's gone. It's removed. So what should have been the response of that servant walking out of that place that day? He should have been so overwhelmed with the amount of mercy he'd just been given. Basically, almost a lifetime worth of earnings was just forgiven. He is going to keep his family intact, his wife and his children. He comes out. He sees his fellow servants. You would have, think, you would have thought he would have just celebrated before them. 
But instead, as he comes out of that room, he singles out the other servant in the room that he knows owes him some money. And in this case, it was a hundred silver coins or denarii, which was worth about a hundred days worth of wages. Twenty years of working forgiven, a pleading for forgiveness, lest he lose his entire family. He walks out of that room instead of celebrating, being grateful, being humbled by this incredible act of mercy. He singles out somebody that owes him a hundred days worth. And he begins to choke him, shake him, and try to get the coins to somehow drop out of his pockets. He has him thrown into jail, which again was his legal right. But instead of showing pardon and showing compassion when this man began to beg as he had begged, he instead chose judgment and justice, but from the wrong spirit, the wrong heart, not the heart of God. Keep in mind, this story was under the context of Peter saying, how many times, Jesus, should I forgive someone who has wronged me? Seven times? Which would have been an incredible amount. And Jesus says, 77 times. Or basically, keep going. Many of us have been wronged by relationships. We're hurt We've been harmed. We're angry. We're fearful. Or we simply disassociate. Or we remove fellowship. Perhaps that person has wronged you one time and you've chosen that path to not pardon or to show compassion. Maybe two, three, four. Five times this person has sinned against you. How many times should you forgive? How many times should you show mercy, compassion, a pardon, a forgiveness? Jesus says, keep going. I think that he has the license to say that because he was the one that paid in full our lifetime worth of sin. We did not deserve his act of compassion and pity towards us. We did not deserve his pardon. But nonetheless, if we receive it, it's paid in full. All the sins are paid in full. Fully forgiven. God says, I see you white as snow. I don't see all the heirs as a collection or an account. I only see through the lens of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of God. Consider the final verse in this story when Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I know that from experience, it's difficult to forgive one who has harmed you. It's particularly 
difficult to forgive one who hasn't begged for mercy or for forgiveness. And you might be tempted to say, well, I am willing to forgive up to 77 times if they show the same spirit of these servants to say, forgive me, I beg you, I beg you for mercy. I don't think that's the qualifier for the 77 times. Why else would Jesus, while hanging on the cross, say to the Father God, in light of all the the mockery that had gone on around that cross, all of the physical uh, expressions of anger that had been thrown upon Jesus, he had been beaten multiple times, his beard had been torn at, they had spit on him. And then on top of that, the mockery of words. What was Jesus' response? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They had never shown any sense of remorse. They had not asked for forgiveness. They had not pleaded for mercy. But yet, the request of Jesus was, Father, forgive them. Have mercy upon them. Pardon them. Have compassion on them. They don't know what they're doing. When Jesus died, those words had an impact. For it was the centurion soldier who said, surely he was the son of God. I believe that the person who is poor in spirit and acknowledges, I can't impress God. I can't get his approval on my own. I need help. And that person grieves over their state. They become humble. They begin to long for right relatedness between them and God. But that longing of right relatedness between them and God also desires a right relatedness between them and others. And when we begin to experience the fullness of God and he's transforming us and he's changing us, And we begin to realize how much mercy we've received, how much we've been given, how much we've been pardoned for. Then the natural response should be being merciful because we've been shown mercy. We've been forgiven much, pardoned much for those of us who've put our faith and trust into the work of Jesus Christ. We've experienced mercy and as a result God says to us then as you've received much mercy be merciful to those who are around you be willing to keep going do it not only seven times be merciful 77 times and God says and I'll continue to show you mercy because blessed approved and affirmed are those who show mercy, for they will receive mercy. So in conclusion, Jesus delights in giving mercy. He delights in it. And he even more delights in the fact that we become merciful in the way we pay forward that mercy. You see, mercy is something we receive, but now we get the opportunity to pay it forward. We've been forgiven a lifetime of sins. How can we not 
provide mercy and compassion to somebody who sinned against us one or two times, maybe even five times. God delights when you can show mercy in spite of your own pain or harm. So let me ask you a few things in conclusion. Consider right now taking some time today to list the top five things you've done in your life that God has extended mercy to you. You know, I think it's an important exercise to acknowledge if it wasn't for the mercy of God, what would have happened if he had truly let me feel the full consequences of this action in my life? Do it. It's an important exercise to realize just how much mercy you've received. Consider the five worst things you've done where you've harmed somebody, you've hurt somebody. Or maybe you blaspheme God or you've done something to anger God or should have angered God. List those things and consider how much mercy you've received in them. And then consider what relationships are you withholding mercy and choosing to keep an account? Is there somebody in your life or somebody's where you've chosen not to offer mercy, but rather keep an account of the wrongs they've done to you? Are you willing to, be, to go beyond keeping the account and choosing mercy? To pardon them for what they've done to you. To forgive them for what they've done to you. And have compassion on them for their own needs. Go beyond Peter's mindset. Where it's like, I think I can get as far as seven times in forgiving them. Have the mindset of Christ where it's, you continue to be merciful again and again. How then can you begin to pay for the mercy you've received in light of the sins you've given account for in your own life and realize how much mercy you've received? Uh, what can you do to pay for the mercy you've received to the person who has harmed you? And lastly, in the right relatedness between you and God, appeal to God for mercy for the being merciless. If you realize that you have held an account to a brother or sister, a friend, a coworker, an acquaintance, appeal to God for mercy for having been merciless to them. And then consider offering thanks, gratefulness to God for all the mercy he's given you. And ask for help in being merciful to those who have harmed you. Let's pray. Father God, I realize that I do lack mercy. Yet I am sure and confident and could list many times when I have received your mercy. I have begged for mercy even in the last several months at different points when I knew my heart was not right on certain issues. And you've given me mercy. You've forgiven me. You've shown compassion to me time and time again. But God, I recognize that when somebody has harmed me, it angers what I, I feel. And justice is what I want to bring to the forefront. And judgment is what I often offer. God, help me to step back away from justice 
and trying to earn justice for myself or judgment upon those who have harmed me. And let those things be in your hands. But instead, Lord, help me to be not only an object that's a recipient of mercy, but one who pays it forward. That I become merciful to those who have harmed me, hurt me, or frustrated me. So God, work in our hearts. We desire to become more like you. We have received much from you. To whom much is given, much is expected. And I realize, Lord, if we've received much mercy, I know you will delight when we show mercy to others. So do a deep work in our heart. And may those who are here in this room that have broken relationships or where they've not uh, offered mercy, but rather kept an account, Lord, may there be a lot of new relationships that are rightly related, healed, because mercy has won the day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we want to respond to that mercy in two ways. For those of us who have received that incredible grace and mercy from God, we want to sing a couple songs in response to that. And the first is, is gratitude. We want to respond to this by reflecting on and being thankful for what God has shown us. And after that, we move to celebration. That because of the mercy God has shown us, we, we don't just sit here and go, oh man, we're such terrible sinners, woe is me. But we acknowledge our need for that. We acknowledge the grace that's been given to us and then we celebrate it. So church, let's stand, let's reflect on and thank Jesus for that incredible grace.
So let's experience the joy that Christ has given us. Come on, church, let's put our hands together.
the power of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder who leaves us breathless in awe and wonder the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace this is unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross you would lay down your chaos back into water who makes the orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of his brilliance the king of glory the king above all
shown to us and the opportunity we have to extend it to others. So for today's benediction, I want to draw our hearts to Jesus' words in Matthew 9, 13, where Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is good news to us that Jesus did not come to extend mercy to the righteous, to the people that had already earned their way into right relationship with God. But he came to share mercy with sinners, with you and me. And he delights in showing that mercy. He loves doing it. He's not reluctant. If you'd like to pray with somebody this morning or just talk through some of the ways that you can show mercy in difficult situations, we'll have people available in the encounter room, which is to my left, your right, that you can be praying with. You can reach out to the church, either the church office or just any of us who are on staff. We'd love to sit down with you. You can email us at office at lefc.net or call us. So I invite you to go in peace and extend that mercy to whoever you can throughout this week. So we'll see you next week.